I think what people should be looking for is the right fit for themselves. You need to know what your needs are, what you're looking for. Hello, and welcome to the Breathe Easy podcast, hosted by myself, Dominic Pepper. In this podcast, we ask an expert clinician, teacher, or researcher to share their insights about career opportunities in the fields of critical care, pulmonary medicine, or sleep medicine. And for today, we go to the Bronx to discuss a career as a clinician researcher. You know, and research to some degree is kind of like your baby. This is your project that you can generate, that you can nurse, that you can see grow and evolve and develop. Hey, is this Michelle? Yes, it is. <laughs> Hi, Dominic speaking. How are you doing? I'm all right, Dominic. Thanks so much for this. So before we get started, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Dr. Michelle Ngong, and I am the Director of Critical Care Research here at Montefiore Medical Center, as well as a professor in internal medicine, as well as um, the Department of Epidemiology and Population Health. As you mentioned before, um, you've, you've uh, studied in palliative care, epidemiology, and uh, obviously a medical degree. But one of the lesser-known facts about you is that you actually have a degree in engineering as well, and that's quite a diverse path. So I was wondering if you could just tell me your story about how you became a clinician researcher uh, with such a diverse uh, background. Oh, Yeah. So I have to admit I'm not one of those people who knew exactly what they wanted to do and how they were going to do it and went down a very clear path. Um, I'm more one of those people who um, basically kept doing something that I enjoyed doing and took advantages of opportunities that came my way. Um, So I actually... um, knew I always wanted to do clinical care, and I thought that's where um, my interest will be and where I think I would spend most of my energies. So as a fellow, actually, uh, as, as a, I should start, as a resident, um, I actually wasn't sure that I was going to go into research and um, had indicated in my fellowship application that I'm definitely interested in academics But I was open to research, but open to education. I just wanted to be in an environment where I can produce, um, develop uh, projects and programs. Um, And then it was actually during fellowship where um, my mentor at the time was also on service with me and just liked the work that I did clinically on the consultative service. Um, and inquired whether or not I would be interested in doing a research project that he had um, that another fellow was doing but was leaving um, because he was graduating. Um, And I took on that project was just telling him fully that I wasn't sure I was going to stay doing research, that I was very happy doing clinical work. Um, And he said, so give it a try and see what happens. So I started doing the project, found myself very interested in it, decided to go for additional training to get a master's so that I could have the skill set to be able to do the project and to be a little more independent about it. And once you develop the skill sets, then I feel I had a lot more um, a po- power and autonomy in deciding how the research went, what analysis I did, which generated even more interest in doing something and building something. And then that led to 
you know, writing a K, and then I was fortunate enough to get my K, which then led to more dedicated time to allow me to work on the research. Um, so that I now actually probably spend more of my time doing research um, than I do um, providing care in the ICU. Um, and a lot of that has to do with um, finding something that was interesting to me that I kept working on, developing the skill set that I was allowed to be able to do a good job on those, and then taking advantage of the opportunities as they came to me to work on those. And you know, and research to some degree is kind of like your baby. This is your project that you can generate, that you can nurse, that you can see grow and evolve and develop. And that sense of um, of uh, satisfaction as well as fulfillment over something as simple as just asking a question, because that's actually how all research started, is what kind of propelled me to keep continuing down this path um, and doing what I do now. You've had the opportunity to uh, mentor a number of um, residents and fellows that are coming through. You've also been mentored by a number of senior clinicians. What should one look for in a research mentor, and, and what should inform your decision? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think what people should be looking for is the right fit for themselves, okay? Because mentoring, research mentor, career mentors, it's it's actually a uh, it's a a dual role. It's there's the mentor and the mentee. So you first should ask yourself, what are you looking for in the mentor? Okay, is it a a mentor that you're looking for to help you teach particular techniques or approach in research or um, a particular field where you're really looking for a mentor who will teach you the technical aspects of how to do that research? That's one type of research mentor, right? But others are actually seeking a research mentor who will not only teach them about research and help them with the career, but it's to develop a career as a physician scientist. And they're not necessarily the same thing. Um, but understanding what kind of mentor you're looking for, what you need in a mentor, what you expect in a mentor, and then going to meet the mentor and seeing what his or her expectations are is probably the first most important but often neglected step in looking for a research mentor. People think too much about what the mentor is in terms of what their career is like, how their research you know, trajectory is, is it the type of research they want to do they forget a little bit about what it is that they're looking for and what the research mentor is particularly looking for because finding the right match will lead to a more productive and fruitful relationship. Um, and, you know, it's sometimes you need multiple mentors to fulfill all your needs, and that's okay, but you need to know what your needs are, what you're looking for um, to be able to search for that. And just as important as talking to the research mentor is to talk to people that have been mentored by them to get a better sense of are these kind of the people that you will want to work with, what you aspire to do, is it what they're doing, um, how was they regarded the relationship with the uh, mentor and what they got out of it. Those are 
uh, ways for a fellow, a student, a resident, um, or even actually a young investigator in terms of finding the right fit. And in 2013, you were awarded the ATS Innovation in Fellowship Education Award. Um, could you please tell us more about it and uh, how this work led to your award? Um, I happen to be uh, in a critical care program in which they have a very strong fellowship that teaches a lot of the technical aspects of critical care. They get excellent clinical training and excellent training in terms of um, procedures, ultrasound, um, all the things that we take into uh, account when we talk about critical care. But one of the holes that I see in fellowship programs across the country um, is this need to develop the skill set of how to communicate and discuss um, end-of-life decisions or values that leads to treatment options. Um, and it's interesting because when we had actually surveyed clinicians in our division about how much time they spend doing procedures versus doing um, these kind of discussions, overwhelmingly um, the time that we spent as attendings in conducting communications with and discussions with patients and their families um, about their care options or about their values and goals of um, care far, far exceeds the amount of time that we spend doing procedures. So I was fortunate enough that one of my mentees, Dr. Aluka Hope, also has an interest in communication um, with patients uh, and their families. So together we had developed a um, curriculum within the Montefiore Medical Center Critical Care Fellowship Program that um, simulate various discussions. So we had, you know, clinicians, nurses, um, and others who was willing to volunteer to play the role of a patient or the patient's family. Um, and we had set scenarios that talk about, you know, discussing goals of care, end of life, and also in terms of um, the decision for tracheostomy and various set kind of scenarios and typical cases that um, our fellows see all the time. And then we let, actually, the fellows um, conduct this discussion with our um, mock patient or patient family um, with one of the other experienced critical care physicians listening in and taking notes about what they did, what they can do, um, what could be done, and giving them, basically, a sense of uh, tools for conducting these conversations. Um, we found that actually um, this led to a much greater increase in the amount of comfort that the fellows had in conducting these kind of conversations. They felt more equipped with the skills to do these, um, and it led them to um, do more of these discussions on their own. And we have since now incorporated this into our, um, our curriculum and uh, submitted this in the abstract back in 2013, for which we were fortunate enough to be uh, recognized um, for innovation by providing a, a role-playing simulation model for teaching communications uh, to our critical care fellows.
You do a lot uh, in terms of your daily activities. You're a clinician, a researcher. You have numerous teaching responsibilities. I mean, how do you balance it on a day-to-day basis? How, how do you get through and make sure that everything gets done? <laughs> uh, when I figure that out, I'll, you know. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's it's a challenge, but I think one thing that um, that you know, fellows and young investigators and young, you know, clinicians who are starting off should understand is is that nobody's totally figured it out, right? So um, even when you look at people and you think that they have balanced everything, it doesn't mean that everything, they have it down pat and that it's perfection. That's just not life. So part of actually my ability to balance my multiple responsibilities is accepting that I don't have to be perfect about everything and in everything. So I accept what my priorities are, and on any day, some of my balance may be more shifted towards having those priorities, and then I shift back to something else. So overall, in the course of my life, I think that there's good balance. Um, but at any one particular moment, I may be concentrating more on, you know, one thing than another. So an example might be, um, you know, I'm fortunate I chose to do critical care because I think it was easier for me to balance multiple things because we do shifts in the ICU. So when I'm on shift, I can do, I can concentrate on my clinical care. Um, But when I'm not doing shifts, I can actually devote it completely to research and not necessarily have to worry about my clinic or um, outpatient calls um, that I wouldn't be able to neglect, but that I would have to figure out how to balance along with all of my research and meetings and so forth. And I also tailor my teaching responsibility um, where I have to kind of make a decision. Do I want to teach medical students and residents and fellows, and how do I want to teach them? I certainly want to be able to teach um, to make it more uh, conducive to all of my other activities. I choose to do different things, and I don't turn on certain responsibilities. Right? So I would teach clinically when I'm on service, and I very much enjoy my bedside teaching of the residents and the fellows in that aspect. Um, but I don't necessarily want to be the one in charge of the fellowship curriculum. Okay, I think that there are probably other people in the division who can spend more time doing so. But I will take a, I will take responsibility for the teaching of the research direction to the fellows. So the the courses in terms of interpreting clinical research studies, you know, I think that's kind of more in line with what I do and more that I can contribute. And I spend more time mentoring because I think that that's one way for me to teach while also um, meeting the needs of those who need me to teach as well as actually in line with my research. Um, and that's how I can integrate some of these items together. Um, and I make lists. <laughs> the list is what helps me get through it in terms of prioritizing and figuring out what needs to be done um, and to accept it when sometimes I fail in certain aspects of my responsibility. Like I, um, you know, if I, you know, 
couldn't be there for my, you know, son's performance. Um, you know, I accept that and try to be there for the next one rather than beat myself over the head for missing that one because I was busy working on a grant and couldn't um, or had to travel for one of my conferences or meetings instead of being there. And I think having that, that's the key to um, kind of balance. Choose wisely what you want to do. Don't only do the things that you think can help on multiple fronts, not just one thing. Um, be able to say no, and then give yourself some latitude to not be perfect. Well, last question for you. Um, you recently, at the ATS conference, um, participated in a symposia uh, entitled Critical Care Meets Silicon Valley. Um, what do you believe the field of critical care informatics will look like in the next 10 to 15 years, and uh, what should we be looking for? Yeah, so that's where my um, engineering background had come in, um, and um, you know, I've, over the last five years or so, I've developed an increasing interest in um, informatics and electronic health records in the ICU, both in terms of improving our care that we give, but also actually in terms of its incorporation into research. Um, and over the next 10 to 15 years, I think we're going to see um, a growth of third-party vendors that creates um, applications or programs that will utilizes the EMR data or sits on top of the EMR to meet some of the gaps that is left open by the EMR. And those gaps um, include, for example, predictive analytics, you know, ability to churn through a large amount of data in the hospital, in the ICU, um, but maybe actually more so even outside the hospital and in, uh, outside the ICU and in the hospital, and identifying patterns, um, patterns of patients who may be at risk for clinical deterioration, um, patterns of patients who are at risk for um, more adverse events, um, patterns of um, increased healthcare utilization, that there is a increase in pressure or need on a hospital with um, more respiratory failures and more ventilator uses. Um, and those will, I think, become more and more common um, and blur the lines in terms of how we use data to plan our care and to identify those patients in the hospital that needs certain types of care and intervention. Along those lines, I think we're going to see increasing amount of decision support, um, and not just decision support like platelets too low, but actually decision support that has the ability to take the data of patients in the hospital integrate the data with um, practice guideline cares and data from population studies around that has been published to be able to guide the clinicians in terms of consideration for one type of diagnostic test versus another or one treatment option versus another. Um, and how that we can do that in the most um, productive, efficient way while respecting autonomy and judgment, 
um, I think it's going to be an area of research um, coming up. And lastly, I think that there will be a growth in terms of better understanding and use of hospital data, ICU data, data from monitors, from pumps, from ventilators, and how we use that in research, not only for data collection, but how do we actually use that as a platform for leveraging interventions to improve care. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day um, to speak with us. Big thank you to Dr. Michelle Gong for joining me. And thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.